So this afternoon, two speakers, uh, both named Peter, it's very easy for you to remember names. Uh, Peter Williams first is a philosopher locally working for Morris and travels around the country for them. Uh, Peter May, retired GP from his second. Peter Williams first is going to talk to us on Jesus, history or faith. Thank you very much. Um, I have also written um, some material on the historical uh, Jesus uh, example I'm flagging up here, my book Understanding Jesus. But like this talk, I try and combine uh, a little bit of the sort of philosophical approach to the, uh, the assumptions that people bring to the investigation of the historical Jesus. And I've called this talk uh, The Jesus of Faith versus The Christ of History. Uh, you may uh, be familiar with this language if you've read uh, any liberal theology at all. Um, the atheist philosopher of mine, Colin McGinn, says this about Jesus. He says, I still admire many of the teachings of Jesus Christ and find his life exemplary of some important moral truths. But I long ago rejected the supernatural baggage that accompanies Christian belief. Now, I'm not going to, you know, I could pick up on the description of supernatural baggage in that kind of offhand way, uh, and how uh, integral it is to the picture we get of the historical Jesus and so on, but I think other talks have, have done that. But I think there's something interesting going on here. You see, at the top of the quote here, McGinn as an atheist accepts some of the historical record about Jesus' existence, about his ethical teachings, about his life. But then he goes on to reject the historical record about Jesus where anything supernatural is concerned. Likewise, uh, Philip Pullman, the atheist author, says Jesus was a great storyteller. To invent the story about the Good Samaritan, you hear it once, you never forget it. You tell it to someone else and it still has the same effect. The man was a genius of storytelling if nothing else, which, of course, he you know, thinks of him as being merely human. And again, that same bifurcation between accepting some of the historical record but eject, uh, rejecting other bits of the historical record. Think about the, the story of the Good Samaritan in the historical record. It's a story that only appears in one Second-hand report. It's only in the Gospel of Luke. It's not an eyewitness gospel. It's written at least 30 years after the event that it's describing there. Nevertheless, even the Liberal Jesus Seminar voted with their marbles that this parable is authentic, saying 60% of the fellows rated it as red, i.e. definitely authentic, and a further 29% rated it pink. That's probably authentic. But nonetheless, this is just a 30-year-late second-hand report in one gospel. But Philip Pullman seems quite happy to accept it as historical. And yet, if you were to look at, say, the letter to Galatians, much earlier than 30 years after the event here, about 49 AD, crucifixion 33 to 49, talking about Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. A lot earlier, as a report about something supernatural. Or the fact that we have eyewitness testimony for the resurrection uh, from Paul, 
also described by Luke, so you've got uh, multiple sources saying that bit of information, a uh, bit of information that impressed even Anthony Flew as a sceptical atheist at the time. You can piece together the general outline of the Passion story from multiple early independent historical sources, including Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts, the 1 Corinthians 15 creed that Peter May has talked about, um, the pre-Mark and Passion narrative in Mark, and Paul's sermon in Presidian Antioch, also recorded in Luke. And noting there, just a couple of quotes from James Dunn and um, you know, Bart Ehrman, well known as an agnostic, sceptical New Testament scholar, talking about the speeches in Acts being based on oral traditions incorporating material that existed long before Luke put pen to papyrus. You get multiple and multiple independent sources for the resurrection appearances. We've got multiple independent sources for at least two individual and three group appearances of the resurrected Jesus. And that includes the fact that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. You've got that information from two independent sources, from Matthew and John, and that's also a bit of information that passes the historical criteria. Remember, we talked about criteria of authenticity a few weeks ago, of embarrassment, because that was culturally embarrassing for them. So, some of the supernatural baggage you get in the scriptures is supported by a lot more historical evidence than some of the ethical teaching that atheists like McGinn and Pullman are quite happy to admit. So, what's going on about that? Well, here's a New Testament scholar called Helen Bond. She puts it like this. She says, Modern academic study of the historical Jesus only really began in the wake of the 18th century Enlightenment with its rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways. The emergence of historical criticism in the 19th century allowed distinctions to be made between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. Distinctions that have underpinned the quest for the historical Jesus ever since. Now, I don't have time to pull her up on her rather monolithic picture of the nature of the Enlightenment. Let's leave that to one side. But... The rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways does not allow the distinction between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. It requires that distinction. And it requires that distinction regardless of the evidence. The modern academic study of the historical Jesus described by Bond here is actually the, in inverted commas, search for a Jesus consistent with metaphysical naturalism. This means that the Jesus happily acknowledged by many atheists and agnostics is, in this precise sense, a Jesus of faith, an understanding of Jesus shaped by faith in naturalism, trust in naturalism, 
rather than a Jesus of history. That is an understanding of Jesus produced by following the historical evidence. As Phil Fernandez puts it, since they reject the possibility of miracles, they cannot accept the miracle-working Jesus portrayed in the pages of the New Testament. Hence, they're forced to try and discover a non-miraculous Jesus in history. This is the crucial point. They have not proven that the true Jesus of history is not the Jesus of the Gospels. They assume this to be the case before they begin their investigation. Now, there are three basic um, a priori before experience approaches people take to sustaining this, this line of demarcation, if you like, between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And, of course, you can mix these up in various ways. But the metaphysical approach, first of all, saying that miracles can't happen. The epistemological approach, the theory of knowledge approach, saying, uh, okay, miracles can't be known to have happened. And thirdly, the definitional approach that simply says miracles can't be mentioned within history as a subject, as we define it. Let's look at those three in turn briefly. The metaphysical approach, this idea, miracles can't happen, so you just rule that off the table at the beginning of your investigation of Jesus. French neo-atheist Michel Onfray asserts that we should approach any purportedly holy book from, quote, a standpoint hostile to belief in revelation. He assumes that the answer to his rhetorical question, who would have done the revealing, is, of course, nobody, since he's an atheist. But, okay, but in that case, if that's the approach you're taking, you better not approach any purportedly holy book wielding demands that they prove adequate empirical evidence for their revelatory status. Because doing that would involve you in a double standard. Lawrence M. Krauss, atheist, cosmologist, puts it, a God who can create the laws of nature can presumably also circumvent them at will. I.e., if there is a God, then surely miracles are possible. There's this deep linkage between those two questions. As J.P. Monod and William Lane Craig put it, only to the extent that one has good grounds for believing atheism to be true, could one be rationally justified in denying the possibility of miracles? The epistemological, the theory of knowledge approach to this demarcation line, saying even if you say, okay, maybe miracles are possible, but we can't ever know that they've happened, so they're kind of irrelevant to the discussion. Daniel Dennett atheist, says this, in the end, there is no true religion in the factual sense, for there is no good evidence supporting their truth claims. Seems like he's saying, the problem I have with you religious believers is you believe something for which there isn't any evidence. But he also says, historical arguments about revelation simply cannot be introduced into serious investigation of God's since they are manifestly question-begging. And he says, you'd have to assume that there is a God in order to believe that miracles are possible. So investigating whether or not there is a God by looking for are there miracles is is 
question begging. But you see, that's not quite right. You don't have to assume that theism is true. You only have to assume that it is possibly true to assume that miracles are at least possibilities that you will leave open to investigation. So it's actually Dennett who begs the question against revelation claims by invoking, and here's another quote from him, another way he does it, by invoking, quote, the scientific method, which we should apply to this investigation, the scientific method with its assumption of no miracles. So on the one hand, my problem with you religious folks is you believe something with no evidence. Show me the evidence. On the other hand, I don't believe I could ever be convinced by any evidence. You can't have any. Richard Dawkins criticises faith as requiring blind trust in the absence of evidence, famously. Again, it seems like he's saying the problem is you have no evidence for the miracles. But he also says the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles without embarrassment. I'm clearly either lying my head off or uneducated. In other words, I won't believe any evidence for miracles, and you shouldn't either, because that's too embarrassing. Dawkins again. Did Jesus come alive again three days after being crucified? There is an answer to every such question, whether or not we can discover it in practice, and it is a strictly scientific answer. However... Dawkins also explicitly rejects such an apparently open-minded inquiry into the evidence on a priori grounds. He says, quote, Suppose something happens that we don't understand and we can't see how it could be fraud or trickery or lies. Would it ever, would it ever be right to conclude that it must be supernatural? No! See? So... Quick reply, J.C.A. Gaskin put it like this. He said, um, while it's certainly true that when something altogether extraordinary is reported, the wise man will require more evidence than usual and will check and recheck the evidence very carefully. Nevertheless, at some stage in his accumulation of respectable evidence, the wise man would be in danger of becoming dogmatic and obscurantist if he did not believe the evidence. You have to at least think that it's possible to reach such a point if you're going to claim that your investigation of the evidence is an open-minded, rational, scientific investigation. As the agnostic philosopher John Ehrman, in his uh, book critiquing David Hume's famous arguments about miracles, Hume's abject failure, uh, puts it, an epistemology, a theory of knowledge that does not allow for the possibility that evidence, whether from eyewitness testimony or from other sources, can establish the the credibility of a UFO landing, a, a walking on water, a resurrection, is inadequate. He's saying an adequate theory of knowledge has to allow for the possibility, at least, of you being convinced on the basis of evidence that something extraordinary has happened. Now, the definitional approach, the final approach, saying miracles can't be mentioned within history, 
So Albert Schweitzer, uh, so the exclusion of a miracle from our view of history says, has been universally, universally recognised as a principle of criticism so that miracles are no longer concerns the historian. Miracles no longer concerns the historian, either positively or negatively. I'm not saying they don't happen. I'm just saying when we do history, we just don't discuss that sort of thing, you know. <laughs> Now, the Jesus Seminar endorses, likewise, D.F. Strauss said something very similar. This distinction between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. They say it's the first pillar of scholarly wisdom. And they contend that, by definition, the historical Jesus must be a non-supernatural figure. The seminar thereby guarantees, by definition, that miraculous explanations are non-historical, irrespective of the evidence... And, note, irrespective of the facts of the matter. <coughs> Which might lead you to agree with atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton, talking in a different context about the rule of methodological naturalism. He says the rejection of the supernatural should not be a part of scientific, we might load in here, historical methodology. If science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, it follows that the aim of science history is not generating true theories or not discovering what actually happened in the past. Instead, the aim of history would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. Science is better off, history is better off, without being shackled by methodological naturalism. Thomas Nagel, another atheist philosopher, uh, makes another good point, I think, when he says that a purely semantic classification of a hypothesis or its denial as belonging or not to science or history is of limited interest to someone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or not. <laughs> That's the question. Okay. You don't want to call it history. I call it schmistry. <laughs> I'm doing schmistry. Schmistry is now the study of what actually happened in the past. I think schmistry is a lot more interesting a subject than history. <laughs> okay? Because history is not about looking for the truth. <laughs> Atheist v, uh, W. Quine put it like this way. He said, if I saw indirect explanatory benefit... In positing sensibilia, possibilia, spirits, a creator, I would joyfully accord them scientific status too, on a par with such avowedly scientific posits as quarks and black holes. In other words, for Quine, as an atheist, saying, my theory of knowledge is, if something does good explanatory work, that's a good reason to believe in it. Let's get on and find out what's true. <laughs> so, in conclusion... Some, and no, I say some, some atheists attack Christianity by kind of wielding these very scientific de sounding demands for evidence on the false assumption, of course, that Christians don't have any, <laughs> whilst actually rejecting miracles on philosophical, like a priori grounds. This is what philosophers call a double standard. The so-called Jesus of history is actually a Jesus of faith 
in various a priori constraints upon what history should be, rather than it coming out of the evidence. And I think there is no good reason why the so-called Christ of faith should not also be the Christ of history, if, and of course it's a very important if, if following the evidence supports that conclusion. Thank you. Well, certainly new atheists make, make that criticism of Christians. Many new atheists come very close, if, if not actually going over the line, to saying Jesus didn't exist. Topic we looked at, by the way, if you look back in the podcast in the first week of this term. Um, so, yeah, they make, they make that accusation. Um, they don't have a leg to stand on when making it. That's a problem. <laughs> But, um, and of course, when you're, you know, you get the atheist critique, like Dawkins saying, you know, the trouble is with you religious people is, you know, painting with a very broad brush. You believe things without any, you know, sufficient attention to your rational obligations, as it were. Um, I think we should admit that, of course, yes, some religious people do behave like that. There are religious people who operate on the basis of blind faith. Um, The the trouble is painting with such a broad brush that you say that every religious person does that. And that that is intrinsic to the nature of religion. It's clearly not. As even many atheists and humanist critiques of the new atheists have pointed out repeatedly to them. Do you, do you accept that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence? Um, they're not clear where that came from. Is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it requires extraordinary evidence. It, it's a phrase uh, made particularly famous or coined by Carl Sagan in the, in the um, Cosmos TV series, the first one, rather than the one that Neil Tyson Degrasse just did. Um, so vague, actually, that phrase as to be really difficult for me to respond to. And I think when you try and nail it down more, uh, I would certainly have um, questions with it. But I did, I had the quote from, from Gaskin saying that when you've got an extraordinary or supernatural claim or whatever, of course you will want to look carefully at the evidence. And you may feel you want more evidence than for some other things. Um, Fine, you know, that, that's a whole other discussion to say, is that evidence there or not? What, what I'm really majoring on pointing out here is that isn't it a bit odd that certain atheists seem entirely happy to accept a, a 30 year after report second hand in one gospel about one bit of th- information, but when it comes to something supernatural, and there is a lot more evidence about it, it's, you know, really their critique is not 
there's not enough evidence. Their critique is, oh, well, I could never be convinced that a miracle happened anyway, or miracles are impossible, or we shouldn't mention that within history, or whatever. And I think, you know, it should be, as you're saying, it should be about what's the claim, what's the evidence, does it convince me or not? Yeah. Do you believe that, for example, the words of the Sermon on the Mount used by Jesus are literally taken down verbatim? Because I, I guess most people nowadays accept the fact that these mm. were things that Jesus perhaps might have said due to some oral traditions. So it's not as if what we're seeing is actually reported at the time. These are the right. things that might have happened. Now, yeah. when it comes to things like the resurrection appearances, there's lots of debates about what actually happens. Because when something happened to Paul, it was if he saw something or experienced something, people with him didn't experience that. So if you're going to put it on the same par, you see that we don't really know what Jesus actually said. We don't actually know what therefore might have happened when he walked on water or cured people. Because there are people like Apollonius and Tyrena. They had been <laughs> doing miracles as well. Right. The circle maker, these were yeah, also yeah. reported as doing miracles. There's been lots of people at that time were told that they were actually doing miracles. Okay. There's no reason why Jesus wouldn't have been a miracle worker as well at that time. Okay, do you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. I think there is a halfway house between um, thinking that the Sermon on the Mount, for example, is a word-for-word transcript that we've now translated into English of what Jesus said on that particular occasion and thinking it merely is a a suggestion of what might have happened in history. Um, I'm sure it is not a word-for-word transcript of what he said. I think we can be fairly confident that it's a a fairly accurate representation of the thoughts that he put across at the time. Um, So that's what I would say on that. Uh, I should show you to the work of people like Craig, um, Craig A. Evans on Apollonius of, of Tyrena and, and so on, and other so-called miracle workers at the time. I would simply say that the, the, the level of, of empirical evidence, of historical evidence for those claims is far behind the evidence that you get in the New Testament for the miracle working of, of Jesus. I didn't even, you know... Um, Okay, we've got, we can talk about Paul, and clearly it, it, it seems that the other people there didn't experience quite the same thing as he did. Not that they didn't experience anything, but not quite the same thing. Um, but what do you do about the, the four parallel reports that I gave from Corinthians, from Acts? Uh, so on what do you do about Galatians? What do you do, etc.? There, there's so much more evidence uh, to deal with that uh, for me, the accumulation, the accumulated case of, the, of looking at that evidence through the kind of standard criteria that we looked at a few weeks ago far surpasses claims like the Apollonius of Tyrrhenia claims which you get in one later biography written a long time after that is perhaps, scholars argue, actually influenced by the Christian stories <laughs> rather than, than vice versa. Keep things moving they seem to say that, that, that they reject the idea of miracles. Are they more precise, and do they say which particular miracles in the Bible they object to? Oh, any. All, all of them. But I think how some of the, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to explain the, the healing, uh, the, the healings, then I think a kind of non-supernatural explanation would involve the mind and the body and neurodistinguistic. Yeah, body. perhaps you could go there for some of them, Those sure. Um, yeah. Which is not really, you know, the mind has never been... Very easy thing for science to pin down. Mm, 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 
Yeah, maybe maybe some of the healings are psycho, you know, psychosomatic cures or, or whatever. Yeah, well, yeah, um, and they heal themselves from anorexia. They can go on yeah, that yeah, yeah. Apparently, if you watch sports, that might um, make you healthier because unconsciously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, that's right. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think you make a good point, and I think that's why it's that's interesting. That of course, the central miracle claim of Christianity is Jesus being dead and buried and coming back from the death. Uh, and that's probably not a psychosomatic cure on his part. I, I, you know, okay. <laughs> so if, even if you know, there might be some cases that, you know, just on the evidence available to us, you might say, well, maybe we could explain that naturalistically well, or whatever. That worked out in the morgue, right, in South Africa a few years ago. People who think of death have actually not been dead or who have been dead and then come back to life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. So again, it's into the particulars. You're, in, you're right. Absolutely, you're asking the right questions, and it is into the particulars of the evidential case of um, how good is the evidence that he was really dead when he was buried, and, uh, and how good is the evidence that that was, and so on. And those are the absolute questions uh, to ask, um, but not ones that I can give uh, adequate answers to in the zero minutes that I have left. Um, but I refer you to um, this book, Understanding Jesus, has a chapter on the resurrection in it. Indeed, I'm feeling in a, in a giving mood tonight. So um, here, here's an offer. If you are not a Christian, you know who you are, um, and you want a book, come to me and I'll give you a book <laughs> uh, to go into, uh, get you started on uh, the particulars of the historical case. And again, as I say, as I was doing in this talk, looking at how do the assumptions that you bring to the table kind of filter and affect how you deal with, how you interpret the evidence. Um, the book doesn't hit you over the head with it. It says, uh, here's how the thoughts might influence your thinking. Here's the data. Where do you take it? That's the kind of okay, approach. Okay, we'll move on. There are no right. allowance for renouncing your faith for two minutes so as to get free blood. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cakes and then we'll go back.